0: Welcome to the Learning Unlocked podcast, presented by Open Sesame. Taking a deep dive into the global world of learning and development with practical tips and tricks, along with insights from leading brands and the people that make them work. This is Learning Unlocked. Now, here's your host, Brian Berger. My guest is Kevin Oaks. He is the CEO of the Institute for Corporate Productivity. He's the author of the book, Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Kevin has been in the L&D world for over 20 years. You can learn more about him by visiting i4cp.com. Kevin, thanks for joining us on Learning Unlocked. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Brian. Share
0: with us how you first got into the learning and development space, if you would.
1: Yeah, sure. I um, started my uh, first company back in the 90s, just outside of Boston, um, to do e-learning for corporations. And this was uh, long before the term was even invented, and it was even before uh, the web, (laughs) believe it or not. So we were doing CD-ROM-based e-learning. Wow. uh, Basically putting, you know, uh, classes that, that companies had uh, inside their organizations onto a CD-ROM, so they could deliver it, you know, asynchronously to their audience. So, so that's how I got into the world of uh, L and D and the world of HR. That's
0: old school, right there.
1: It is. Uh, what I attracted know, myself too. That's that's the problem.
0: <laughs> what attracted you to this space?
1: Um, you know, I I uh, first saw. a a technology-delivered learning program delivered on Laserdisc, believe it or not, dating myself even further, um, where surgeons were uh, looking at different surgeries and uh, being quizzed on what they saw and what they needed to do um, to operate on patients. And I thought, what a fantastic visual learning tool. And then I saw the same learning tool used in a sales situation where you could see the customer's reaction or the prospect's reaction based on what you were selecting um, as something you wanted to present. And I just fell in love with the whole concept of a a different way to learn, a different way to educate people. uh, And, uh, you know, and the rest is history, I guess.
0: (laughs) Then you wrote a book. Not many people write a book. What led you to want to write a book?
1: So this book, Culture Renovation, is uh, definitely a labor of love. Um, My organization today, I4CP, uh, does HR research. In fact, we do more HR research than any other company on the planet, always with a business lens of what are high-performing organizations doing differently with their people practices versus low-performing organizations. And one of the subjects that we uh, study quite a bit and we launched a, a very large research study on a couple of years ago was on organizational culture, but specifically on culture change. And I talked to a lot of CEOs or other uh, business executives who will say, I, you know, I wish our culture was X or, I, you know, we want to try to change our culture to be more, you know, something. Uh, But what I find with a lot of those executives is they just don't know how to do it. They don't understand the steps they need to take to to be effective at culture change. Our research shows that companies that attempt to change their culture, they mostly fail at it. In fact, Mm -hmm. only 15%, 1-5% actually succeed. And so we honed in on those success stories and the companies that have had successful change to see if there was some kind of commonality or blueprint that other organizations could follow uh, from a step-by-step basis. And that was the basis of the research and the basis of the book, where we created 18 leadership actions that companies can take with lots and lots of case studies of successful companies who have implemented those actions to effectively change organizational culture. And I think, Brian, today, this is um, a very big issue for a lot of companies. The the pandemic has changed uh, companies' cultures, like it or not. Um, sometimes it's changing for, for the better, but a lot of times, you know, it's introduced complexity to the culture that they didn't have before. So I think the question for a lot of companies today is, do you want to be passive about that and, and just reactive to, you know, what the pandemic has done to your culture? Or do you want to be proactive and shape the culture you want going forward? So I think the book is hitting at a good time for a lot of organizations who want to be proactive and want to shape that culture for the future.
0: A lot more of us are working from home, working virtually. How does culture shift when we're interacting with people more virtually than in person?
1: One of the biggest things that shifted is leadership traits. And I think leaders of teams have had to adapt their leadership styles uh, and what they focus on with their remote teams. Uh, because this is so new for for many companies now, keep in mind that for a lot of companies and a lot of teams, they were dealing with this long before the pandemic. But for most organizations, the you know just the the sheer timing and and suddenness of going to a, you know a virtual working environment has been has been a bit of a shock to the system. And so I think from a cultural perspective, you've got to rely on those leaders and teach those traits. Uh, to have effective, um, you know, effective work from home or work remotely, uh, relationships and, and productivity. I think what we're seeing now, though, as companies are beginning to return to the office, there's, there's quite a conundrum for a number of organizations. And I, I talk to a lot of heads of HR every day about this. Uh, they're struggling with uh, the policies that they want going forward. Are we going to strongly encourage people to come back to the office? Are we gonna require people to come back to the office? Or are we gonna go into some kind of hybrid or flex model where people can work uh, remotely if they want, maybe work remotely uh, you know, two or three days out of the week? The policies are kind of all over the map right now, Brian. And unfortunately for a lot of organizations, it's, it's also having a big effect on the culture of the company. And depending on the industry you're in or the, you know, the type of company you are, uh, you know, that effect can uh, can be very large or can be, you know, minute. And so it's pretty interesting in, in our role, you know, working with a variety of different companies just to see, you know, the different approaches that companies are taking.
0: Are companies as cohesive as they were before the pandemic when everyone was working in
1: person? Some are more cohesive and I hear this all the time. Uh, and it's primarily because they've never seen the level of empathy shown by senior management or their their direct manager uh, in the past year, uh, ever before, and that that empathy is recognizing the whole person. You know, a lot of times we only saw the business persona uh, of an individual. Today, we're jetted into people's kitchens and living rooms. We're seeing their pets and their kids, or maybe they're you know they've they've got elder care responsibilities, and you're getting a much better better broader picture of. Uh, that employee, and I think to management's credit, in a lot of organizations, they they're empathetic towards individual situations and trying to be flexible um, based on that. And so I think a lot of uh, of employees I talk to feel like, as a culture, we've come together more uh, because we're more open about the rest of our lives and more understanding about you know what my peers are dealing with or what my what senior leaders are dealing with. Um, in other respects, you know, there's, there's a mistrust in some organizations around remote work. If I don't see you, I don't know that you're actually working. Uh, and that's caused some CEOs to be very public about the fact that they want people back in the office and they don't think people are as productive working virtually. Uh, Jamie Dimon probably uh, has gotten the most publicity around this from, from J.P. Morgan Chase uh, but also uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, has uh, said, you know, I want I want employees back in the office. And many other CEOs have said, said the same thing. I think it's dangerous to make those edicts. I think you're um, you know, a lot of employees are immediately sort of turned off by those by those edicts. And I think uh, flexibility is probably going to be the key word going forward uh, for most companies and trying to understand those individual situations.
0: Are you seeing any trends of people who might've been hired to only be in the office before, but maybe they're in another state now and they can work virtually and a company's hiring them because, hey, I've discovered you can be a designer in another state and still work for me. You don't have to be in my state and in my office.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating how we've changed our perceptions of jobs, we, you know, of roles inside of organizations. Uh, And how employees have changed their perceptions of uh, their employability, um, you know, based on that. I was talking to one head of HR yesterday who's in Southern California. And when the pandemic hit, a lot of their employees headed to Montana, Idaho, Colorado, and discovered, boy, the cost of living out here is (laughs) a lot different than Southern California. So trying to get those employees back, you know, into the geographic region is going to be a challenge um, for for that company. And the question is, do we even need to? You know, can we just let them stay where they are? Um, There's been this sort of romantic uh, notion of work from anywhere in some organizations. And, you know, they've said, hey, we don't care where you work until they start talking to their benefits people. And they realize, oh, we've got some tax implications here and we've got to know where people are because we've got to know how, you know, how to Uh, Tax and withhold taxes, Um, you know, and and there's complexities if you're going to go out of the country as well um, that are uh, the burden of the company. So so there's some, you know, there's some parameters around, you know, the work from anywhere, work virtually. Um, But I think it's opened up a lot of people's eyes around where can work be done from and how effective it can be uh, when it's, um, you know, when it's not in the office.
0: More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be a top priority for businesses everywhere. Open Sesame has created a survey that will give you insight into where your organization stands on diversity. Aside from being educational, this survey is a powerful tool to help you understand areas of improvement and spark conversations about strategies for creating a more inclusive and equitable workplace. After you take the short survey, you'll get access to Open Sesame's DEI Toolkit, an online hub where you can find additional resources. Visit opensesame.com today to start your survey. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here's Brian Berger. You talk about human capital a lot in your book. Yeah. Explain to our audience what is human capital? <laughs>
1: Uh, It's a fancy word for people, Um, (laughs) and it's probably, it's not a great word, honestly, but it's the word the industry or the term the industry uses. Uh, I think the important aspect of it, though, is most organizations today recognize that uh, that human capital is their most valuable asset um, versus any other forms of capital. And today, uh, companies are putting a lot more effort and a lot more investment into making sure that their people practices uh, are giving, um, a, a more holistic, uh, benefit to the people that work for the organization. And they're thinking about, uh, not just what they do at work, but their, their entire life experience. Cause what happens outside of work often affects work. And so companies are trying to help their employee base, um, manage that a little bit better, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, social relationships, whether it's financial relationships, and we all know that you know a poor financial relationship can uh, can be very harmful in other areas of life. Um, and these companies are recognizing that they need to step up and help their employee base in ways that they maybe didn't in the past. We're also seeing it, that at the board level um, in organizations, a lot of boards of directors. Uh, have over-architected on financial acumen for the directors, and they focus you know much more on the finances of the company when they get, go into board meetings or look at things in between board meetings. Today they're starting to recognize the culture um, and the people are maybe even more important. You know, some of its risk mitigation, you know, we've all read about some of the the you know miscues that different organizations have made, like. You know, uh, Wells Fargo with their their sales environment, or the 737 Max tragedies at Boeing, uh, or the emissions uh, fiasco at, at Volkswagen. A lot of that was attributed to the a culture that contributed to those problems, which uh, you know had significant market cap implications for those companies. Uh, so boards are recognizing that these culture issues. Um, can be very risky if we are not aware of them or if we're not doing things to make sure we have a healthy culture overall. And so they're paying more attention to it. How do you
0: pay more attention or become more aware of an unhealthy culture? Because a lot of the stories I read, when it's discovered, it's too late. And oftentimes people go, wait a minute, that was right under my nose and I didn't see it.
1: Happens all the time. The problem is too many boards allow their impression of the culture to be almost completely filtered through the eyes of the CEO Mm. or maybe a couple other executives that they tend to come in contact with as opposed to getting data from a variety of sources about the culture of the organization. Uh, And so I'm a big proponent that boards should be looking at some of the employee sentiment data that employees are collecting. Uh, We do this all the time now through surveys internally. And during the pandemic, companies were surveying their employee base more regularly than they were before, but also gathering employee sentiment from external sources. So there's a lot of stuff on companies out on Glassdoor or Indeed, for example. Some of it can be very caustic, but if there's enough data, it, it's, um, it's usually uh, fairly accurate data. And has, even if it's caustic, has glimmers of truth. But if you can combine that or marry that up with the internal data, and then look at other indicators like unwanted attrition. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, fan of employee net promoter score, which basically is asking employees, would you recommend this company to your friends and associates as a good place to work? You know That can be always be a good indicator. All of those attributes or measurements are things that uh, I think boards need to look at on a regular basis so that you can pick out those early warning signs uh, and not be reactive when suddenly something that was right under your nose, you know, some, suddenly uh, erupts.
0: You just mentioned some of them, but if you're an employee at, an, at a company and you want to share ideas, you know, I'm observing this. I think we could do this better. Here's an idea for something we're not doing. What's the best way for employees
1: to share ideas? Um, more and more organizations are, uh, moving to an always on active listening, uh, strategy. And what that means is there's a platform that allows them to share those ideas, Brian. And, um, uh, and there's a, there's an environment where it's psychologically safe to share those ideas. That's often the biggest issue inside of companies is that, um, you know, if I do speak up, uh, I should feel safe in doing so. I don't want to be in an environment where I'm going to immediately be you know berated or or you know penalized, reprimanded for for sharing my opinion, even if it's not a popular opinion. Um, you know for more serious issues, uh, most organizations have some kind of hotline um, that uh, that an employee can access um, you know to uh, to talk about you know issues that they're seeing that concern them inside the organization. I think companies have taken that concept a little further to make sure that, you know, even if it's not sort of this immediate uh, violation of ethics or you know whatever it might be, uh, if it's something you're concerned about, there's a a mechanism that they can turn to uh, to share that info. The um, the important thing is management needs to listen to that though, and and uh, employees need to feel like it's not just going into a black hole. Um, those are healthy organizations generally where they have a very active listening strategy and uh, it's very clear that the management team is listening and acting on employee feedback.
0: Leadership at the at the highest levels of an organization. Um, you know I think a lot of people who sit in those seats do have those leadership traits, but if they don't, what's the best way? for leaders of companies to get educated on how to be a good leader and how to lead your your team, especially in this new world that we live in today?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of avenues. There's um, a a number of companies are creating internal uh, classes and courses that, um, that those leaders can take around traits that they need to be an effective leader in the future. Uh, we have found through our research that there are new leadership traits uh, that will probably be in place for quite some time based on our new reality of, of flexible and hybrid work uh, that people are working into those classes. There's also a number of external courses, though, and some excellent courses out there. And you know, a company like Open Sesame has a, has a lot of those courses available to, uh, to companies that will help educate on those new leadership traits that organizations need. What I love is that there's a variety of ways that those traits can be exhibited. Um, you, know, you, can, you can look at good examples through video, you can be quizzed, uh, you can see the uh, implications of your answers, like I talked about earlier, what attracted me to this business to begin with, uh, through e-learning. And so I, you know, I love all the different varieties of options that organizations have available to them today to help with leadership behaviors. And I, I highlight that in, in the book, Brian, that's um, in, the, in the 18 steps. Uh, the, the thing that successful companies did was identify the behaviors they wanted for leaders going forward, and then they invested in training on those, on those uh, behaviors. It was a huge dichotomy uh, between companies that were successful at culture change and how much they invested in that training versus the ones that were unsuccessful, who basically didn't do anything around training.
0: More of Learning Unlocked is coming up after this. Open Sesame helps companies develop the world's most productive and admired workforces. How? By having the most comprehensive catalog of e-learning courses from the world's top publishers, publishers like TED and Harvard. And having courses that cover learning topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership development, safety and compliance, and wellness. Try a course for free today by visiting opensesame.com backslash course of the week. Back to Learning Unlocked. Here is Brian Berger. So those companies amaze me. The companies that don't do anything around training in this day and age. Uh, there's got to be a stark contrast between those that train and, and those that don't at this point. I mean, it's kind of like having restrooms in your office. Like, you, you just, it should be a, a given now, right?
1: It should be. Um, you know, there's some old school thinking out there where, you know, organizations don't feel like they need to invest in their people. Or in, and that's really what it boils down to. Do you want to invest in the development of your people or not? Uh, and, you know, typically those are low performing companies. You know, like I said earlier, that's what we, we research. We research the high performers versus the low performers. And it, it's night and day on training. You know, the, the high performers, they get it. They're investing in the development of their people and they're high performers because of that. Um, and I, I highlight in the book how important a learning culture is to healthy organizations. Uh, I start out by profiling Microsoft and the wonderful job that Satya Nadella and the team there have done at renovating uh, the culture of Microsoft. Learning is front and center. And uh, Satya has been very vocal in saying, I want a culture of learn it alls, not a culture of know it alls. Hmm. Uh, and that uh, learning is something that he's passionate about and he wants his employees to be passionate about. And unfortunately, it, it does kind of fall back to what is the leader passionate about? And if you've got a company where you've got a CEO or a senior team that just doesn't appreciate the value of learning, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle to try to get more learning into that organization.
0: How much does a history of an organization play into its culture?
1: A lot. (laughs) Um, I, I didn't really describe why we labeled the book the way we labeled it. Uh, Most people, when they talk about culture change, they use the word transformation, um, which is an inaccurate term to use because most companies don't completely transform their culture or start from scratch. Instead, what they do is they renovate their culture and they take the history of that organization, what made them great to begin with, maybe their original purpose, a lot of their, their uh, values, and they carry it forward and renovate like you would an old house. In an old house, you're going to keep what's unique about that house, what's hard to replace about that house, but you're going to update it so that you can increase the value in the future. And that's exactly what the smart companies are doing about their culture. They're renovating so they can increase the value in the future. And so history plays a big part. And I talk a lot in the book about What aspects of your history do you want to bring forward? Uh, Do you want to highlight that really um, strengthen what you're trying to do um, long-term? And companies with rich histories, it's important to to recognize those. It's important to celebrate those rich histories uh, and and educate employees about why some of the norms that you have today are rooted back in that history. Uh, That, to me, is always a trait of of a very solid, healthy culture. So I I think history is a a big part of it.
0: Before I let you go, trends that we should be paying attention to, I know we've already discussed some of them, but uh, are there any additional trends that companies should be paying attention to?
1: Well, you know, I think if there's one thing that uh, a number of organizations rediscovered during the pandemic, it was the value of transparency uh, and being very open and honest that you don't always have the answers. Uh, I think some of the some of the companies that came through the pandemic the best were the ones who said, "We're making decisions based on today. We're not really sure what tomorrow's going to look like, uh, and we may change our mind. We may change that policy. but they're they're being very open and honest. And so our research has always found that transparency, I don't know if I call it a trend, but it's something that uh, companies are are recognizing is more and more important uh, going forward. Certainly, well-being is a big one. Uh, I think as we emerge from the pandemic, Companies now are putting the investment into the well-being of the workforce, um, not just from a, a physical or mental and emotional well-being perspective, but from a holistic perspective. And like I said earlier, looking at you know, the social and community and financial aspects of well-being uh, for their employees and how can we support them through programs and other initiatives uh, to make sure that we have a, you know, a healthy workforce going forward. Being burned out is one of the, the main reasons why people are leaving companies today, and so addressing how we can help them from a burnout perspective. But then, you know, last thing I'll mention, Brian, is just is the, uh, you know, the development of employees uh, is just so critical. And, and aside from courses and training, you know, I find that there are other things that managers can do to really further the development of their employees. Talent mobility is uh, a you know, a trait that I think high performing organizations have more formalized and they're making sure that managers aren't hoarding good talent. Um, That's a trait of low performing organizations where they let people just uh, keep top talent in one division um, as opposed to intentionally getting top talent, high potential talent moving throughout the organization. That does wonders for that talent. It does wonders for the organization. And some of those former talent hoarders, once they become known for developing people, they become talent magnets. Everybody wants to go work for somebody who's going to advance my career and get me, you know, get me promoted, get me moved into a skill set that makes sense. So I think that's another area that uh, companies are beginning to discover is one that we need to formalize a little bit more going forward.
0: Kevin Oakes, the CEO of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, author of the book Culture Renovation 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Find more about him and get his book at I4CP.com. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on Learning Unlocked.
1: Thanks, Brian. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Learning Unlocked, presented
0: by Open Sesame. Download this and every episode on Apple Podcasts
1: and Spotify. Learning Unlocked is produced by Griggs Productions.